It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, my daughter asked me last night, what's your feeling about this giant ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal? And I thought for a moment, like, I don't have a friggin' position on it. I don't know what to do. Do you know what to do? It seems like it's just an enormous, almost existential mess. Uh, welcome to the Friday edition of Media Buzz Meter. I hope you got a good weekend coming up. It's Friday. That means you get the obligatory plug for Media Buzz Sunday morning on Fox 11 Eastern. We're still putting the show together after President Biden's news conference. Uh, President Trump calling in to Laura Ingham last night. Got a lot to talk about here. But on this Suez thing, of course, there has to be uh, some uh, geopolitical, sociological conclusions to be drawn from the fact that We've got this ship, uh, I heard Bill Hemmer say this morning that it's twice the size or twice the length of the Washington Monument. I mean, the numbers are just unbelievable. Well, the New York Times says this morning, this is a lesson about the perils of heavy reliance on global supply chains. Single ship running around in the Suez Canal, blocking traffic and broke connections, has grave or potentially grave consequences. Uh, this ship has space for 20,000 metal boxes and meanwhile uh, could sow fresh chaos from Los Angeles to Rotterdam to Shanghai. Well, I guess that's what happens when one of the world's most important shipping routes is shut down. Uh, I'm talking about importing like massive amounts of sand. I don't know. We'll watch that space. Um, Sesame Street, before we get down to business here, is introducing some new Muppets now in the past. Uh, the, the beloved children's program have, has come up with Muppets to talk about things like autism, HIV, homelessness. Well, now there are two new characters, five-year-old Wes and his father Elijah, will offer a lesson on race. I guess um, you would expect that. I mean, you know, from its very beginning, back in what, 1969, you know, Sesame Street had a kind of a diverse cast. You know, they kind of lived in the inner city and they were, um, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of white puppets. Uh, so that's the latest on that. The ABCs of racial literacy. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times and its sister paper, the San Diego Union Tribune, have lost more than $50 million in revenue last year. Uh, this came out of a meeting with staffers. Uh, clearly, that is kind of the thing you tell your staff when you're going to have to tighten your belt, lay people off, cut back. A uh, recording of the meeting was obtained by the RAP. Uh, that is pretty incredible. Uh, on the weird side of media business, um, New York Times has a tech columnist and reporter named Kevin Roos. Uh, he wrote a column called Buy This Column on the Blockchain. It was turned into an NFT. I would attempt to explain what an NFT is, but it's kind of hard to explain. And all of a sudden, like you go into it, everyone's supposed to know, well, NFT, 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 I don't know, even the... What it stands for it doesn't quite capture it. Anyway, it was auctioned off on the open market for about $500,000. Uh, wowza. Uh, this is kind of hard to get my head around. Uh, so Roos tweeted, why can't a journalist join the NFT party too? So there's been a lot of jokes about, hey, you can buy this, you can buy that. I've got a nice column here. Everybody want to buy it? All right, I want to get in to President Biden's first news conference. It lasted just over an hour. It was on in the afternoon yesterday. This wasn't one of these prime time extravaganzas, so chances are you didn't see it. You saw clips or read about it. Um, 
And I got a lot of thoughts on it. First of all, it has been a mistake for some Biden critics on the right to be constantly painting him as confused, senile, doesn't know his ass from his elbow, uh, is not going to be able to string two sentences together. Because he spoke for an hour about a lot of policies, and, you know, he basically did fine. Now, well, part of the reason he did fine had to do with the lame-ass nature of the questions reporters asked him, and I, I will get into that in just one moment. And, look, there were times when Biden rambled, then he would stop himself and call himself out for rambling and apologize. There were times when he tripped over his words, he got into these sort of verbal cul-de-sacs. Um, and so it wasn't like a flawless performance. Joe Biden wasn't elected because he's a great orator or speech giver or somebody who can deliver a stellar news conference. In fact, the fact that he waited 64 days shows you he doesn't particularly relish these things. I think he doesn't want to be as front and center. He wants to kind of give his teleprompter speeches and make progress behind the scenes. But as I've said many times, it's in the job description. you got to talk to the press. Now, some of his detractors are saying, oh, my God. Biden had note cards that he occasionally consulted, and he brought a thick briefing book. And my position is this. I don't think the average American cares whether he had note cards or a briefing book. He was quite open about it. I mean, I use notes when I do an hour of television. Uh, when Jin Psaki comes, she's got a briefing book. Every press secretary who has uh, uh, talks to the press has a briefing book. You know, if it enables him to look down and, and uh, have, drill down on the details of things, so what? So what? Is it like a test of uh, manhood that you memorize every single thing? You know, the one thing you can't, I mean, Biden at one point made a joke about, well, I was in the Senate for 120 years. I mean, this guy knows the stuff. When he talks about foreign policy or domestic policy, you may not agree with him. You may not think he's telling the truth. You may think, uh, you know, not like his style. But, you know, he knows his stuff. He also still talks like a senator. He talks about my colleagues, my Republican colleagues. They're not his colleagues. He's not a senator. He's the president. But that's just a personal uh, observation. Now, the reporters went really easy on Joe Biden. And it was embarrassing to watch at times. Either because they would ask him these open-ended questions. Well, are you going to make progress on these four issues? Well, What's the, what are you going to do? How far are you ready to go? Uh, the AP Zeke Miller asked to make progress on these four issues. And it was like climate change, gun control, immigration. What's he going to say? I, I'm not going to go that far. I'll, I'll just hope that I make progress. Or they were just these beltway process questions. A lot on the filibuster. I'll come back to that. Or some of these correspondents openly prodded Joe Biden to do more to pass his liberal agenda. And they also let him off the hook. So, shockingly to me, it wasn't until the very end, I think it was a Bloomberg reporter, it was like, he was like the ninth reporter called upon. There were nearly 40 questions asked, so there was a lot of time to cover ground. And this was like the second or third question the Bloomberg reporter asked, and it had to do uh, with gun control. And, of course, you know, given all the attention, understandably, that the media have paid to the uh, horrible uh, mass shooting at the Boulder supermarket and the horrible mass shootings at the Atlanta spas, um, I thought that would come up a lot sooner. And Biden started to say, well, it's a question of timing, which I guess was a kind of a veiled signal that he's not necessarily going to stop everything and push gun control, knowing full well he's going to have trouble getting that through. He doesn't even have uh, 50 Democratic votes for that in the Senate. 
And then he went into a long disquisition about infrastructure, because today is Infrastructure Day. The president going to Pittsburgh is going to have a speech about infrastructure, and that's great, but that wasn't the question, and there was no follow-up. Ultimately, in this entire hour, nearly 40 questions, 10 reporters called upon, not Fox's Peter Ducey, which I thought was a mistake. Biden has said he likes Peter Ducey, right? And so he was clearly was excluded because Biden had a list for your name people he's going to call upon. He got to some, I would just call them kind of secondary news organizations, um, called on people from all the other networks, CBS, ABC, CNN, um, NBC, and not Fox. Okay, it's, you know, he's the president of the United States, he can call on anyone he wants, but it did open the door to say, well, was he afraid of getting a tougher question from a Fox News correspondent? But in the hour, in the nearly 40 questions, not one question about the pandemic, not one question about a pandemic that just yesterday killed more than 1,200 Americans. And it didn't have to be, are you doing a great job on the pandemic? You know, it's a lot to be asked about the vaccine program. Look, Biden wanted to talk about the pandemic. He started with an opening statement saying he's now set the goal at 200 million shots in his first 100 days. Earlier, it had been 100. No question about the $2 trillion aid package passed. And there's a lot to criticize and explore there. Nothing on unemployment, nothing on school reopenings. I thought that the reporters, by and large, seemed out of touch with kitchen table America. Not one question on the pandemic. On what planet could that be justified? And Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, complained on Twitter about this. They clearly wanted the president to be asked about the coronavirus. What is the number one uh, issue for the president? It's the coronavirus. What is the number one issue for the country? It's staying safe, dealing with the virus, and, and getting the economy back on its feet. The lockdowns question, the school reopening question, it was just unfathomable to me that that did not come up. Now, the, the questions were on substantive issues. There was a question about Afghanistan. There was a question about China. There was a question about North Korea. But by and large, the president wasn't really challenged. There was one exception to that, and that was on the border crisis. And two journalists in particular, I have to single out. ABC's Cecilia Vega really pressed Biden when Biden tried to say, well, when he was first asked about the border, he basically blamed it on the Trump administration. I don't think I'm sending any signal. The border is closed and so forth. Well, the border is not closed uh, for unaccompanied minors. And he said, I make no apology for not turning back uh, these kids. What am I supposed to do? Let them go uh, back to their home country and starve? Uh, and then he kind of suggested that's what Donald Trump has done. I thought that was the one sort of cheap shot in the thing. Uh, but Cecilia Vega said that she would just come back from the border and she had interviewed or spoken to a nine-year-old boy who had walked to the Mexican border from Honduras and talked about how kids are getting the message that it is okay to come because Biden is president. I thought that was good. And NBC's Kristen Welker, remember she moderated the second presidential debate, she twice pressed Biden on when he, why he won't allow access to journalists to see the overcrowded facilities there. You know, allowing an NBC reporter in to see the one uh, that's not overcrowded, that's run by HHS, that has a soccer field and basketball courts, that's not cutting it. And she, she said, you know, will you commit? There was no wiggle room. A direct question is the best question to ask a president. He said, yes, I will commit, but I can't tell you when. We have to put more in place. Can you tell us how long it would take? Biden wouldn't give a date. But she tried. But the rest of it, I got to say, what really struck me was how there was this baked-in assumption 
that Joe Biden stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I mean, talk about openly um, embracing his priorities. So you had PBS's Yamish Alcindor, who used to always tangle with President Trump. And in fairness, President Trump used to uh, be pretty rough on her. And Biden, you know, one of the reasons there wasn't any drama is though Biden bristled at a couple of questions. He didn't um, really snap at the reporters. Uh, so I'm sure they enjoyed that. But Yamish Alcindor, as part of a question on the border, said, you're, or the perception is that you're a moral, decent man. And that set the tone. You're a moral, decent man. The reporters like and respect Joe Biden. Then she favorably quoted Chuck Schumer. Then she favorably quoted uh, Jim Clyburn. At another point, CNN's Caitlin Collins favorably quoted Barack Obama. This was on the filibuster. What they didn't do, except for a brief aside about Mitch McConnell, how he's always spoken to Biden once uh, since he became president, is to ask him to respond to any Republican criticism at all. I mean, that is standard at these news conferences. Democratic president, you say, Republicans say this about you. How do you re respond? A Republican president, you say, Democrats say this about you. How do you respond? Nothing on that. They didn't even ask him about criticism from Joe Manchin. And so that, that just drove home. I mean, there were several questions about voting rights. Why, how are you going to pass the Democrats' voting rights legislation? Nothing about the content of it, nothing about the criticism that perhaps it goes too far. Uh, how are you going to deal with the dastardly Republicans who are pushing uh, limitations or restrictions on voting in the states? Um, Biden, in fact, was the most passionate about that. He said it was un-American what the Republicans were doing. He said it was sick. He talked about the Georgia law that was just signed into uh, law last night by Republican Governor Brian Kemp, who actually stood up to Donald Trump on the fake election, or stolen election, rigged election question. Uh, but among other things, as Biden pointed out, that Georgia law makes it illegal to bring food or water to any like, older people who might be waiting in line for a very long time. It also limits, as Biden pointed out, the voting hours on election day from nine to five. Well, as Biden said, if you're a working person, you can't get off work till five o'clock. Makes it very difficult for you to vote. So there are legitimate questions, but the way, the tone in which the reporters ask, how are you going to get this passed? What about voting rights? What are you going to do about that? And what about the filibuster? And why don't you just get rid of it? I mean, obviously it's up to the senators, not um, the president, but um, pushing him and pushing him to get rid of the filibuster so it'll be easier to push through his Democratic agenda over Republican opposition. I'm sorry, that's not the role of the press. The role of the press is to challenge the president. It was, a, it was the polar opposite. I mean, the absolute polar opposite of any Donald Trump press, uh, conference that you ever saw. Now, part of that was because the reporters were not hammering him. You know, when, when they said, how are you going to pass your priorities? Did they stand up with Trump at the beginning uh, and say, how are you going to pass your priorities like tax cuts and conservative judicial appointments uh, and building a wall along the Mexican border? No, they challenged him on his priorities. That's the role of journalists. So I thought it was a pretty weak performance that did nothing to shake the reputation of the press corps as being pretty easy on the 46th president. So let's see what some other people have to say about this. Uh, so, for example, oh, another interesting thing is uh, Biden said at one point that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, that reflected a guy who's been around forever and knows that. And another point he said, well, when, when asked about Republican criticism of him in general uh, or on the, uh, I think it was on the filibuster, um, you know, they just have to vent 
that's part of what they do, and then we'll get down to business. Jim Garrity of National Review uh, critiqued some of the president's answers. We're sending back the vast majorities of families who are coming. The actual percentage he reports in National Review is 13%. Um, Biden more or less said his policy on removing all troops from Afghanistan is to be determined, but he also, in fairness, said he had a hard time imagining there would still be American troops in Afghanistan next year. Obviously, he could change that. Biden said he's uniting the country. His approval rating is 54%, but his disapproval is 39%. He said, and this was when he was asked, you know, would you run against, uh, do you expect to run against Donald Trump? that uh, the Republican Party might not exist in 2024. Oh, that was one I didn't mention. CNN's Caitlin Collins thought one of the most important things to ask is, are you running for re-election? The guy's been in office two months. Are you running for re-election in 2024? Biden said he had every expectation. Uh, another reporter had asked that. She followed up, and then she asked, will Kamala Harris be on the ticket? Now, do you think the vast majority of Americans who are worried about putting food on the table, pandemic, jobs, schools, are sitting around thinking, you know what? Um, three years and some months from now, is Biden going to keep Vice President Harris if he runs? I don't think so. Uh, so Garrity concludes Biden is his usual garrulous, meandering, cliche-loving 78-year-old self. He's always going to be convinced he's saving the soul of America, that his critics are unfair and impatient, that expectations are so high, and there's no gap between what he's promised and when he's delivered. No one will ever give him a break, no matter how many times he makes the request. The man will never come on. It's a reference to, come on, man. So the New York Times put it this way. Uh, Biden reflected on his reputation as a nice guy and decent man. The decent man thing, obviously, was part of a reporter's question, as I mentioned. Talked about how his great-grandfather set sail on the Irish Sea to make the difficult journey to America. He offered an early glimpse of the man who inhabits the Oval Office. Unlike Donald Trump's hot-tempered blow-ups, or Barack Obama's extended answers of professorial cool, Biden was the sober political veteran, says the Times, comfortable with thinking out loud, talking personally and conversationally, and occasionally showing impatience before a roomful of reporters. Dan Balls in the Washington Post. What Biden revealed was a sense of confidence that he understands the rhythms of Washington, learned over a lifetime in the Capitol, a sense of what is and what isn't possible at any given time, what to push, and how to keep his focus on major priorities while adapting to both the crises of the moment and multiple demands for action as those arise. Call it self-confidence or call it hubris. Time will provide the answer. The president has one of the most ambitious agendas of any president in the last half century, says the Post columnist. And he, not only on climate and the economy and the pandemic and infrastructure and immigration and voting rights, but now you have the aftermath of the shootings in Atlanta and Boulder. Um, Oh, this is what he said when asked about Senate Republicans who say they won't take up immigration legislation. Uh, no, they have to posture for a while. They have to sort of get it out of their system. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Moving along here, there was some criticism, mostly on the right, about Biden had note cards. Biden brought a, a, a briefing book. I absolutely don't think a single American cares a normal American, average American cares about whether he brought notes or not, as I said earlier. Politico has a piece calling up some Republican senators to talk about Biden's mental acuity. Um, Biden's fitness for office, a longtime fixation among conservatives, is dominating conversations on the right. Uh, uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia met with Biden twice. He was sharp as a tack, she says. Senator Todd Young of Indiana 
met with Biden on COVID. I visited with him. He seemed well-prepared and well-briefed for the meeting. Um, so the people who are actually dealing with him are just not buying what some of the pundits are saying, that basically he's confused and he's reading off a teleprompter and he doesn't know what he's doing. Meanwhile, Donald Trump called in for an interview with Fox's Laura Ingram last night, and he talked about the Capitol riot. He said his supporters at the Capitol posed zero threat, and there were people who were hugging and kissing the police. Well, there were people who posed zero threat and were just sort of part of the mob scene there. And there are other people who were physically attacking police. One Capitol policeman died, as you know. There's horrifying, chilling video footage of um, police officers being, you know, attacked with flagpoles and other sort of makeshift weapons. They suffered concussions and fractures. Uh, 400 people have been arrested. Um, and the foreign president said, well, he said his arrested supporters were being persecuted for involvement in the violence. He did say the rioters shouldn't have done it, but then he turned to Antifa and Black Lives Matter. He said they're really dangerous and truly hate our country. Uh, as he tried to talk more about uh, the rigged election and going back into that, those familiar litany, uh, Laura Ingram at one point cut him off and said, you know, we're not going to relitigate the election here. On another story, uh, it looks like sometime in May, the Biden administration will have to make a decision on what to do with a surplus of coronavirus vaccine. Right now, I can't really think about that because I know so many people uh, who don't fit into the priority groups who are just really uh, anxious and some, in some cases even desperate to get the shots themselves. But looking ahead, there's a prediction by mid-May uh, there will be, uh, let's see, about 70 million more doses than the entire American population. So what does Biden do? Does he keep them? Does he modify them? Does he sell them to other countries? At least 30 countries around the world have not yet injected a single person because they don't have uh, vaccines. Infections are soaring in India, for example. Uh, India is now holding back its uh, dosages. Uh, the European Union uh, is moving on emergency legislation to curb vaccine exports for six weeks. So Biden administration officials are saying, according to the New York Times, that they kind of want to hold on to the surplus to make sure that all the needs are met. Uh, also, there is research being done on children and adolescents who aren't vaccinated but might need to be vaccinated, depending on the results. At the same time, you know, they maybe feel some responsibility to share this with the rest of the world. Speaking of Fox, as it was earlier, a Dominion Voting Systems has now filed a $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News alleging that the network falsely claimed that Dominion uh, was part of rigging the 2020 election. Uh, Fox earlier has battled the, uh, a similar lawsuit by Smartmatic, which makes other voting machines. In a statement, Fox News Media is proud of our 2020 election coverage, which stands in the highest tradition of American journalism, and will vigorously defend against this baseless lawsuit in court, Fox said in response to the Dominion suit. And I'm sure the suit cites certain uh, hosts or commentators uh, talking about uh, voting machines. Uh, and we'll see how that suit comes out. So that's two major lawsuits. And by the way, these lawsuits have also been filed against other people, uh, lawsuits against Sidney Powell, uh, lawsuits against uh, other news organizations. So this is going to be a major arena of litigation. 
And by the way, on the Andrew Cuomo story, you know, I talked at length yesterday about the Albany Times Union and the Washington Post revealing that at a time when almost no one could get a COVID test, early on in the pandemic when the test barely existed, when labs didn't quite have the wherewithal to process them, that the governor of New York made sure that his brother, CNN host Chris Cuomo, that his mother and I think one of the siblings um, were able to get those tests as well as uh, certain others. If you were, were some kind of VIP, you could get the test at a time that no one else could. And CNN has gotten a lot of um, flack for this, for Chris Cuomo not revealing this. Again, I understand on a human level, whether you're just an average schmo or you're the governor of the state of New York, you would want to take care of your family, but things are different when you are the governor. Well, now there's a follow-up story in the New York Times saying, the president of Regeneron, a pharmaceutical company with long-standing ties to Andrew Cuomo, received special access to coronavirus testing last year as the first wave was tearing across the New York metropolitan area at a time when tests were severely limited. The company requested tests from the state for its president, a guy named George Yankopoulos, and his family after a member of his household became infected with COVID-19, according to a company spokeswoman. State officials granted the request and tested the family at home in March, similar to what Chris Cuomo got. By then, New York had already become the epicenter of the pandemic. On April 1st, Governor Cuomo announced that Regeneron would create 500,000 testing kits and provide them free of charge to New York State. Well, that's a great thing for the company to have done. Obviously, it had a cozy relationship with Governor Cuomo. And when you have that kind of relationship and you're the president of the company, guess what? You get to have, when you're, you get in trouble, when you're worried about having coronavirus because it's infected your household, you get to get those tests. You get to jump the line uh, before anybody else. I guess that's the way it works. Um, but it adds to, it not only adds to uh, questions and criticisms of Andrew Cuomo at a time when he is facing growing calls to resign, but this has now become in part of the impeachment proceedings in Albany in the State Assembly. This has been officially added to what the impeachment investigation is going to look uh, at. And so again, favoritism is very much part of this. Now, is that you got multiple, you got Cuomo just playing defense on multiple things. The nursing home crisis, the, re, the withholding of information about a uh, number of cases, elderly people who died from the virus, who had, who either were or had been in nursing homes, um, nearly twice as high as the state of New York originally acknowledged. And then, of course, you have the sexual harassment allegations of at least seven women by my count, some of them, a couple of them current aides, many of them former aides, talking about unwanted kissing and touching and inappropriate comments, all of which has Andrew Cuomo under severe political pressure. He is insisting that he won't resign. Nobody can force him to resign, and he is entitled to due process. And you need to add that whenever we talk about this. So a hell of a lot going on. You know what? Just a final thought on the news conference thing. Um, again, I've been highly critical of the reporters, but Biden didn't do badly. Nobody elected this guy to be a brilliant theatrical performer. He shouldn't have waited so long because, you know, he knows how to do this. He'd been in politics a long time. The guy was vice president for eight years. He ran for president three times. He knows how to take questions. If he makes a gaffe, if he makes a blunder, if he says something that later has to be corrected, so be it. That's part 
of the process. So I think President Biden should do these more often. It shouldn't be once every two months. And he should, and he should take more questions more often from journalists. It doesn't have to be a full-dress news conference. He should do more television interviews, maybe even with Fox News. And by the way, Jen Psaki is going to be on Fox News Sunday this Sunday for the second or third time, so they're not completely avoiding Fox. But I just think however much Joe Biden's team may conclude that it doesn't do him any good, he doesn't get anything out of it. Actually, you do get something out of it. You show that you can answer tough questions. If there are tough questions, they were not, by and large, with a couple of exceptions yesterday. You show, you communicate, you use the questions as a chance to get your own message out. And by the way, it's part of the job. So I think Biden should do this more often. And I don't think it will be uh, politically disastrous for him to do this more often. You may have your own views, but, you know, it was kind of a no drama press conference by and large. And that's a disappointment to the media, which want controversy, sound bites, uh, you know, Donald Trump versus Jim Acosta. That's not what you're going to get with this president. All right. Hope you're going to have a great weekend. Stay safe. Hope you'll get a chance to watch Media Buzz Sunday morning. And, you know, the drill, if you want to subscribe here, you can get it on Apple iTunes, on your Amazon device, on Google Podcasts. We'll see you all back here Monday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.